right, folks, we're back in the Fitz News Studio for another edition of Your Week in Review. A ton of stuff to cover. We've got a big update on the saga of Jared J. Price, the convicted killer and gang leader whose illegal release from the custody of the South Carolina Department of Corrections has created a political and judicial firestorm in South Carolina. We're going to bring you the latest on that case, including the fact that this convicted killer is on the run from authorities as we tape this show. We're also going to bring you a big update on the Murdoch story. We've got the latest batch of love letters sent to Alec Murdoch in his undisclosed location within the Department of Corrections. Jen Wood and I are going to sit down and go through some of those uh, interesting bits of correspondence. We're also going to give you a little bit of an insight into a big problem currently staring down South Carolina on the healthcare front. I'm talking about an obesity epidemic that is crippling this state and could pose some serious costs on healthcare consumers in the years to come. We're going to talk to an expert on that issue. All that and more heading your way on the Week in Review. All right, so obviously the big story this week, the escalation of the story of Jared J. Price, the convicted killer gang leader whose illegitimate, illegal, and unconstitutional release from a South Carolina correctional, from the South Carolina correctional system, rather, last month has created a firestorm of controversy, not only for the South Carolina court system, but also for the lawyer legislators who appoint South Carolina's judges and justices. Now, this news outlet first reported on Price's release, which was engineered via a backroom deal between his attorney, powerful legislator uh, Todd Rutherford, and Circuit Court Judge Casey Manning. This was one of Casey Manning's last acts prior to retiring from office. But this secret deal, which was under a court seal, which was not properly filed or stamped as a motion before the court, it was literally done under cover of darkness. A deal between this powerful attorney and this judge, both of whom, by the way, have a history of enabling corruption in South Carolina. This deal freed a gang leader, someone who, had, according to correction sources, ordered two hits on correctional wardens. In fact, they had to move him to a prison in New Mexico as a result of this. And in fact, that's where he was at the time of his extra-legal and unconstitutional release. Now, we covered a lot of this in our, our last episode, and we've covered a lot of this over the last few days on Fitz News. But this week, at long last, there was a hearing before the South Carolina Supreme Court, again, the, in, the entity which has enabled a lot of this judicial corruption over the years, people, there was a hearing before the court as to whether or not Price's release should be voided and whether or not he should be remanded back to the custody of the South Carolina Department of Corrections. Frankly, this guy never should have been let out. He was let out with 15 years on his sentence for a gang murder, okay? A mandatory minimum sentence. No way he should have been out. But there was a court hearing as to whether or not he should be remanded back back to the custody of the Department of Corrections. And by a very narrow three-to-two vote, the court ruled that, yes, he should be. They voided his release, again, which is what they should have done, and they ordered that he be picked up and brought back to the South Carolina Department of Corrections. Now, there's a little problem with that. The problem with that is that this gang leader, Gerard Price, has had a little bit of time to make some moves. And sure enough... On the day this ruling was issued, after police had been following and watching his movements, Price ditched the trail. In fact, he ditched the trail a day or two earlier in Charlotte, North Carolina, according to our sources. He had been 
in Richland County, South Carolina, as this news outlet reported. In fact, he'd had gotten a haircut, went to see a lady friend, apparently. <clears throat> you know, do, doing whatever escape gang, or not escape, but illegally released gang leaders do, right? So here's where we are. And this is a key point I want to bring up. Days before this court hearing, on April 21, Attorney General Alan Wilson wrote a letter to Chief Justice Donald Beatty. And this is in addition to the AG's office filing a writ of prohibition which sought to put uh, Price back in, in jail while police knew where he was. That sought to have him picked up and held prior to the hearing. But in addition to that formal paper, Attorney General Wilson sent a letter to, to Justice Beatty. We got a copy of it right here. Right here. We exclusively reported on this yesterday on Fitz News. But this letter points out very specifically that the AG is very concerned that Price is not under any sort of bond or any restrictions on his movements. Anything requiring his presence in South Carolina. And that he is a danger to the community and a flight risk right there. Which is exactly what happened. That this was in the hands of Justice Chief Justice Beatty days before the hearing on Jared Price's, again, illegal, unconstitutional release. And I keep using those terms, and some people have challenged those, but let me be clear. The South Carolina Constitution affords crime victims the right to not only be heard, or not, I'm sorry, the right to not only be aware of a convicted killer's release, but the right to appear at a hearing and share why they believe that convicted killer should or should not be released. That's in the Constitution. That's not just a, a law. That's in the state Constitution. None of that happened in this case. None of that happened. And I call it illegal because, again, the South Carolina Code of Law specifically states that if you are convicted of murder in South Carolina under this mandatory minimum sentence, which is what Price was convicted for in December of 2003 after he brutally murdered a University of North Carolina football player at Club Voodoo in Columbia, South Carolina. If you are sentenced under that statute, you have to serve day for day, every day of that sentence. Which means he should not have been released until 2038. He's out now, folks. But I want to talk for a minute about, because the, the real tra travesty, I'm sorry, the real travesty here isn't the fact that this killers on the streets. The real travesty is the system which put him back on the streets. And I want to talk about that briefly. Because during the hearing, the two justices who voted against apprehending or attempting to apprehend Price, who, who said he should remain free, they made some interesting comments that I think are very telling about the system. And the first comment I want to draw your attention to is from Chief Justice Donald Beatty, who basically tried to put the blame for this on prosecutors. Let's cut to that clip. Well, well Mr. Mr. Wilson, we don't argue with you about the statute. We, we, we're looking for you to give us some authority to do what you're asking us to do. All you're doing is just saying this is a bad thing. Do well, something about it. That's a mess that y'all made, and you're asking us to clean it up without well, giving us grounds to clean it up. It is unconscionable for him to say that this is somehow the the state's fault. It is, he's half right. It is the state's fault. But for him to attempt to pin all of this on prosecutors when it was his judge 
who did this, who was the driving force behind this, not the prosecutors. Although, again, I'm very concerned about Fifth Circuit Solicitor Byron Gibson's role in this, very concerned. But it was ultimately the judge's call. So for the chief justice of this court, of this entire state, to make that sort of a claim, it shows you exactly where his head is. And it is, frankly, not where it needs to be, which is public safety, which is the rights of victims, which is the fundamental fairness of what's supposed to be a system of justice. Unfortunately, in this state, it's not a system of justice. It is an annex, a political annex of a corrupt legislative branch of government. But again, let's get into that now. I want to talk about that because there was another comment during this hearing from another justice. His name is Buck James from Sumter, South Carolina. He's one of the newer justices on the court. But Buck James decided during this big hearing earlier this week that it was his job to stand up and defend South Carolina's lawyer legislators and this corrupt system. Let's, let's listen to what he had to say. More fundamental question. Is Mr. Rutherford's status as a lawyer legislator relevant to any legal or procedural defects that you have argued? I'm not making what he does professionally an issue in this case, this specific case. Because it seems to me that that has been a driving factor in forums other than one here today. But his, uh, he didn't exert any undue influence over Mr. Gibson, did he? There is no evidence in the record that I've seen that he has, as, as the record I have right now, Your Honor. But again, the secrecy of this whole thing makes people look at this with great skepticism. But and the lawyer-legislator angle, you agree, is wholly irrelevant. But in this court, it's all about the law, Your Honor. All about the law. I just want to be clear on that. Thank you. All right, so James says that the lawyer-legislator angle here is wholly irrelevant? What in the world is this guy talking about? What planet is this justice on, people? A powerful lawyer-legislator convinces a state judge to let a convicted gang leader out. But, hey, let's not talk about the system here. Let's, 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 let's ignore the fact that this is the guy, the one guy, Todd Rutherford. He's on the Judicial Merit Selection Committee here in South Carolina, which is the panel that picks the judges. And they're the ones that keep judges off the bench. So basically, you know what this guy's basically saying? He's saying, please, Representative Rutherford, remember me when I come up before your panel next time. Remember that I had your back during that court hearing. It's disgusting, people. I don't know what to be more pissed off about, the fact that this convicted killer is on the street or the fact that our justices are standing up for the corrupt system that put him back out there. Anyway, I'm a little fired up about this, as you can't tell, because this is something our news outlet has been leading on, has been pushing in the public arena at a debate we have been fighting for years, for years. And this is why. Crap like this is why. This is why we push for these reforms. And I do want to say a few words of crediting some people, because again, this story has blown up in a way that a lot of stories that we previously covered have not blown up. Okay, there's a lot. This happens all the time in South Carolina, but for once, people are paying attention. So I do want to credit some folks. The mainstream press, they've done a great job on this story. They have covered this the way they should. For once, they are finally paying attention the way that they should have been for years. But hey, we're glad they're here. A lot of eyes, a lot of a lot of ears on this story. So everyone who's covering this, whether in print, whether on TV, whether on podcasts, credit. You guys are doing the Lord's work on this. Now, I also want to credit a couple of state lawmakers, two freshman lawmakers, Joe White from Newberry and Heather Bauer from Columbia, both of whom are advancing 
judicial reforms that, frankly, should have been passed a long time ago. Now, are they, are they advancing the level of reforms we need? Well, not necessarily, but it, it is a beginning of a conversation within the General Assembly. And folks, those bills have got a ton of sponsors as a result of this. We're talking dozens of state lawmakers for the first time going on the record saying the system is broken. We need to fix it. Are they proposing the, the level fix that we need? I don't think so. I think we need to go much, much more fundamental in reforming the way that judges are chosen in South Carolina. If you go to Fitz News, we had a story just this past week on what that method should be, letting governors appoint them, letting non-lawyer legislators advise and consent, and then having the public, the giving the public the opportunity to have a recall election or a retention election or both so that there's some public accountability when judges make decisions like this. Now, as this story moves forward, I want you to count on Fitz News not only to cover what's happening with Jared Price, hopefully getting him back behind bars, but more importantly, what is happening to fix the system that let him out in the first place. You can count on us to do that. All right, for this next segment, we are back to Murdoch's. And I got to say, I'm sitting here with Jen Wood, our research director. Jen, I miss our Murdoch's shoes. I miss sitting with you outside the Colleton County Courthouse. Like, There's seriously. so many more trials coming up. I'm sure Memories. we'll do it again. Memories. <laughs> but um, thank you for taking the time today, Jen. Your FOIA on the Alec Murdoch uh, jailhouse love letters. I guess they're not really love letters anymore. We've got some jailhouse stalking going on i mean what the heck is up with this latest batch oh whoo that's a it's a whole lot of uh wow i guess that's all i have is wow a whole lot of wow um yeah. well let's dive in a little bit i was reminded of the line from wedding crashers about stage five clingers <laughs> when i was reading some of these messages like what like this one lady i think i'm becoming obsessed with you what the hell uh, yeah, Jen. and when he, he, I mean, I haven't seen any responses from him, and when he doesn't respond, poor Danielle goes off the deep end. Yeah, like, uh, I went through hell the setting one. this account up. Yeah, she, and she's not the only one. You've got this other woman, um, uh, Kristen, you know, sends him multiple message, uh, messages over a period of days, and he doesn't respond. She's like, why are you ignoring me? I mean, what in the world? I mean, there's got to be something fundamentally wrong with people who send these in the first place. So I guess it stands to reason that when they become clingery, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Yeah, I mean, he's not even responding, so I don't know what they're clinging to other than, I, whoo, holy moly. <laughs> but, you know, it looks like he is getting money in his canteen account from some of these people. So uh, he is no able on the to... Beef sticks front. Right. He can get his beef sticks at the commissary. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just so many people that just want to talk to Alex. Are you surprised? I mean, obviously, we the first round of FOIAs you, you, you got a couple weeks ago, and we saw sort of a sprinkling of these messages, but it's definitely ramping up in the second round of FOIAs. Jen, are you, does this surprise you? I mean, I'm, I know that this happens, you know, I've seen letters written to, you know, to, you know, Ted Bundy and um, Scott Peterson in California. So yeah, I don't know that I'm surprised. I don't think that Alex is as 
good looking as Scott Peterson. Uh, I was about to say, I was about to say, those were, they're all evil people, obviously, but those were at least handsome evil people. I don't know. Yeah. I I, I mean, hard to describe, but you know, at least, at least you can see the, uh, see the attract, like why somebody might be physically attracted to somebody, but Alex, I'm not getting it. Maybe it's the power. According to 23-year-old Brooke from Virginia, though, he is handsome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, she clearly thinks he's, he's good-looking. But, uh, you know, it's just crazy to, to read some of these messages. And one of the things you pointed out, there's no response as of yet from Alec Murdoch, at least that we can track. Obviously, if Alec Murdoch were to decide to write a letter uh, to some of these women who have sent him their addresses, we would. And men. We would. Yeah, we wouldn't know about that, and and I understand that. I mean, I. But let me ask you this question, Jen. Though this has been kind of on my mind because a few folks, not a lot, but a few have have questioned whether or not we should be publishing these exchanges. Mm-hmm. That Murdoch should have a right to privacy. I mean, what's your what's your come back to that criticism? He lost his right to privacy when he was convicted of murdering his wife and child. I mean, it's getting clicks. People are clearly interested in it, whether or not they're outraged by it. So, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he has a right to privacy anymore. That's just, just, just how the cookie crumbles, buddy. Fair enough. The other interesting thing is you read through these messages, there are a ton of folks who are firmly convinced that he did not do it, that he's, that he's innocent. In fact, there was this one lady, this uh, woman from Virginia, I believe her name is uh, Sandra Lewis from Chesapeake, Virginia. She describes herself as, as an independent uh, homicide consultant. And yes, I saw her, that one. Yeah, according to her, she normally only assists law enforcement agencies, but she's making a special exception for Alec Murdoch because according to her, and I quote, I feel certain you did not murder Maggie and Paul. Um, your thoughts on Ms. Was Lewis she watching the same? Was she watching the same trial as us? I mean... <laughs> He, I mean, well, I just, I mean, yeah, yeah, the evidence was circumstantial, highly. Um, but, you know, the video taken on Paul's phone put him at the crime scene when the, when the murders occurred. So whether or not he actually pulled the trigger, I don't think we're ever going to know. Um, but a jury found enough evidence to convict him. So I mean, he, he was there. He lied about being there, and then when he had an opportunity to come clean about the lie, he lied again. I mean, and was caught right. in that lie on the stand. So, yeah, I mean, did they prove conclusively he did it? Mm. But they certainly proved he at least knows who did. Or Exactly. I mean, I, it, I do you think it is an interesting case to dig into forensically and investigatively. Um, I, I do... I can see how that would appeal to an investigator or specialist, um, but I'm not entirely sure they're going to find any evidence that is exculpatory. Right. I, I agree completely. And in fact, that's the other point. You know, you raise a good point there. They may not have necessarily forensically proven that Alec Murdoch did it, um, came as close as you can get, obviously, in a circumstantial case, but there's been nothing nothing from the defense in fact their efforts to portray these alternate theories you know the the 12 year old shooters etc uh were laughable 
laughable. Yeah. And again, I want to bring this back. I want to get back to these letters here in a minute. But, Jen, that goes back to just how important it is to study these sealed crime scene photos. Again, we, we're not supposed to have them. And we're obviously not releasing them. But it's so important to understanding the case because that jury, everyone's like, how did they come back so quickly with this verdict? Well, they saw the evidence, and it was clearly right. in line with what the prosecution's saying, not these theories the defense was putting forward. Right. I mean, I think any doubt that I had that when I was on the fence about whether or not they had enough to convict them, that was alleviated when I saw those pictures because it was very clear that the theories that the defense were putting forward were not not plausible based on what based on the photos. Absolutely not plausible. That's right. Speaking of these uh, of these letters, though, these communications out Murdoch's getting, there were a few in here from the media. One of them from a digital content producer out of WTOC in Savannah, Paige Phillips, and she, interestingly enough, is offering Murdoch the opportunity to frame the legacy of his victims. Talk about how you want Maggie and Paul to be remembered. Did that strike you as an interesting angle? It absolutely is an interesting angle um, because, you know, even throughout the trial, we did hear some about Maggie, but we didn't, you know, we got a better sense of who she was. Um, But it would be interesting to hear more from Alex about who they were other than Mags and Pawpaw. So you don't mind that line of inquiry from from this report? I mean, yeah, I think... I think it's all interesting. I, I mean, well, we have not we have not sent Alec Murdoch anything at this point, asking him to to talk or to share or or whatever. I'm not saying we won't. Um, and, and again, let's not let's not lie. I mean, any any reporter offered the opportunity to speak to him is going to take it. Um, right, right. Um, I mean, if he were to say, "I want to talk to the press." today and i want to talk to you i'd be on my way to south carolina yeah i mean obviously oh go ahead i mean regardless of what i think it's i absolutely would take an opportunity to speak with him and i know you would too we would and uh again the rule in south carolina though is inmates at the uh, the state department of corrections are not allowed to give interviews under any any form any format and certainly they're, they can write letters, they can exchange their thoughts with people that way, but they are uh, prohibited from doing interviews with the press. That is verboten. But certainly we are getting a glimpse of what people want to talk about with Alec Murdoch. With yeah, these yeah. What, I mean, what should, that's interesting, too, what people, you know, what, what approach other reporters would like to take and, you know, what admirers of his want to know. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's all interesting. Interesting, depressing, um, disturbing in some cases. I, I like uh, particularly the the one woman who is a veteran of the Massachusetts uh, penal system, who told Alec Murdoch that she was uh, a lookalike for for Jessica Biel. <laughs> that's why he should interact with her. So you got <laughs> just unbelievable stuff. And then you've got this one woman telling telling him that she's the best looking of the women that are reaching out to him and that he should avoid all the other women because they just want fame and money. Right. And she's best interest. She's not like the other woman, not like the others (laughs) at all. Of course. 
Well, Jen, also, we, we look through these records. They show Murdoch making 65 uh, or attempting to make 65 phone calls. Apparently, only 16 of those um, uh, went through. Uh, the vast I was majority, impressed yeah, that some actually did go through. Yeah. I mean, I, because last time, I don't believe any, maybe one got through. Um, but there were some calls not accepted. Um, A lot of them. Yeah. So 17 calls not accepted. Yeah. Yes. Somebody's hitting that no thank you button. I wonder so, if that's Buster Murdoch. Do you think that's who it was? Buster, maybe Randy. I mean, Randy seemed pretty, uh, like he had some interesting opinions in that interview he did. It is quite a dichotomy, isn't it? You've got all these mm -hmm. people wanting to talk to Alec Murdoch, and yet you've got clearly a number of people that don't. <laughs> don't want right. him calling. Right, Weird right. dichotomy there. Anyway. <laughs> Strange Jen Wood, as always, incredible work on these, on these Freedom of Information Act requests. We're getting a window into this uh, fandom for Alec Murdoch, this crazy culture, hybristophilia, call it whatever you want, but... Um, just can't thank you enough, Jen, for your work getting these documents from the Department of Corrections and uh, letting our, our readers read them and make, their own, make up their own minds. As always, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Jen Wood, everybody, thanks, and we'll be back again. By the way, also, if you haven't seen it on Fitz News, we've got a big story up this week. We exclusively reported last week on the latest income tax charges against Alec Murdoch, but Jen Wood has a feature report detailing that indictment, the latest indictment, bringing his charges on the financial front, 101 different 101. indictments. Unbelievable. Yep, and that's just through the state grand jury, so there's... Just the financial that, crimes. Right. And, Jen, we, we had a status conference last week. They said they're looking for possibly October. Yep, October. Corey, Corey Fleming, the co-conspirator, um, alleged co-conspirator, mm -hmm. He's going to trial September 11th, and it's scheduled for two weeks in Beaufort. Well, Jen Wood, thanks again for your incredible work on this. Keep it tuned to Fitz News for the very latest on the Murdoch murders, crime, and corruption saga. The double homicide trial is over. Murdoch's convicted, sentenced to life in prison. But the story isn't over, folks. There are a ton of cases out there and obviously a ton of lingering interest in this story. Thank you, Jen Wood, for all your work on this story. So a lot of times those in my line of work get accused of chasing headlines, but at Fitz News, we believe in our readers eating their vegetables. And I want to talk about that literally now as it relates to the state of South Carolina's health care. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to conduct a phone interview with Dr. Mark Antonetti at Lexington Medical Center here in the Midlands region of South Carolina. Now, I'm not scared often or frightened often, but some of the stuff that I discussed with Dr. Antonetti on that call was truly frightening as it relates to an epidemic of obesity that is particularly pronounced here in South Carolina and particularly pronounced as it relates to the children of our state. It's incredibly, incredibly troubling, tragic, and it's about to set us up for a disaster in our healthcare system. I sat down with Dr. Antonetti this week in his offices at Lexington Medical to get a little more info on this epidemic, which is, again, approaching critical critical dimensions here in the Palmetto State. Here's an excerpt from that conversation. Well, Dr. Antonetti, I want to thank you for joining us. Obviously, we had a conversation the other day for a story that appeared on our website earlier this month about the obesity epidemic across the country, but also particularly here in South Carolina. And I wanted to tell you, I cover a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of frightening stuff. I don't get scared very often, but some of the numbers, the trends, 
and the costs that you laid out were a little frightening. Well, certainly the numbers are, uh, they are alarming. It's, uh, it's something that's not going away and it's really a silent epidemic that um, people really aren't talking about and really poorly understand the, the coming tidal wave of effects on our society. Well, let me ask you, before we get into some of those numbers, how do we define this? What are we talking about? What is, what is obesity? How do we measure it? How do we know if we have it? What's the... So typically obesity is defined by BMI. BMI is just a measure of weight, ratio of weight to height. So it lets us compare people of different heights and weights. If you're six feet tall and 300 pounds, it's different than if you're five feet tall and 300 pounds. So ab weight is not the absolute measure. So BMI is defined as um, its mass in kilograms over um, surface area in meters squared. So it just basically produces a round number. So normal BMI is 25, basically. That's the cutoff. Between 25 and 30, you're considered overweight. BMI of 30 to 35 is, um, is um, obese, and then over 35, we start getting various categories of morbidly obese patients. So as we look at those numbers here in South Carolina, how do we measure up? Obviously, the report from earlier this month that we talked about, not good in terms of our municipalities. How do we as a state stack up though? Typically South Carolina is always in the top 15 states uh, in terms of uh, percentage of population with obesity. Typically we're 32 to 35 percent of our population is obese. Some of our counties, Allendale County particularly, is, is 46 percent obesity. Uh, across the country though, if you look at all adults, most recent data shows about 42 percent of U.S. adults are obese. Has it always been this bad? Is this? No, it's, it's getting progressively worse rapidly. Um, changes in our society, um, different types of jobs, different levels of activity have really caused this uh, epidemic to accelerate. So we've, we've seen about a doubling in the obesity rate from 1999, 2000 to about to 2022. A doubling? Doubling, In yes. the last? 20 to 25 to 30 years over that time period, depending on which stats you, you use. But yeah, it's about doubled. So, I mean, the the it's across all socioeconomic um, platform um, um, strata it's across all um, races ethnicities we've seen it as just as a population and even across the world it's, it's really a problem there are more people uh, with obesity in the world than there are malnourished people in the world with the exception of some areas in africa it's across all societies to various degrees all right, I want to thank Dr. Antonetti for sitting down with us. This guy was actually incredibly cool. In addition to talking about South Carolina's health care challenges, we also discussed a good bit of political stuff and some sports stuff. He's a hockey fan like I am, so we're looking forward to having him back on camera again very soon as we continue to expand our health care coverage. But I want to thank him for sitting down, and thanks for checking out that important look at South Carolina's obesity epidemic. All right, that's a wrap for this week's episode. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Obviously, we're going to keep very close tabs on the Jared Price story. In the event he is taken into custody, we will be the first to let our readers know. Also, want to make sure you keep tabs on our Palmetto Political Stock Index. We have an interview that we think you're going to be very interested on that front coming very soon, so keep your eyes out for that. But the 2024 South Carolina political world is on fire right now as the presidential primary is heating up and as the battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party continues to unfold here in the Palmetto State. Keep it tuned to Fist News for your very latest political news as we keep you covered on that front. Thanks for tuning in. We will check you next week.